Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. tradition, um, which does not resolve the debate, of course, but is the opening for us to continue to own our Judaism, to own it, to own it and make it our own and see how this speaks to us. Okay, love is very complicated. Love is very sweet, but very complicated. So friends, the Torah is deeply concerned with many types of love. Here's an example of one kind, that of love of one's spouse? Or is this an example of the love of a son for his late mother? Yitzchak brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he took her, and she was a wife to him, and he loved her, and Yitzchak was comforted after his mother, right? So Isaac is sad, his mother, Sarah, dies, and he's never consoled until he marries Rebecca, he marries Rivka, and he goes into the tent with her, presumably to, um, to make love with her after they've just gotten married. And he now is comforted after his, uh, his mother passes. Oh, Freud would love this. Freud would love this. So maybe he did. We also learn that one should love your fellow as yourself, as it famously says in Leviticus 19.18. Rabbi Akiva goes so far to say, this is 
not even A, actually, I, I mistranslated that. The fundamental, the fundamental principle of the Torah. He says, for the Talmudic rabbis, although the Torah speaks elsewhere of the importance of loving the stranger, such as in Deuteronomy 10, 19, the, this particular mitzvah often has to do with our fellow Jews. Right, let me just hash that out again. Love your fellow as yourself. The rabbis think means ahavat Israel, love of your fellow Jew. Loving a stranger, of course, has to do with Gentiles. Okay, so here's what it says in the Sefer Achinoch about the Yahafta the You should love each and every Jew with a soul love, a soul love. That means one should have compassion on each Jew and on his possessions, just like one has compassion on himself and his own possessions. For it says, and you shall love your fellow as you love yourself. The specific laws of this mitzvah are included in the general principle of the mitzvah that a person should deal with their fellow just like they would deal with themselves to guard their possessions and protect them from any damage. And if speaking about them, they should speak about their praises and take compassion for their honor and not to elevate your honor on account of their humiliation. Okay, friends. So um, I want to suggest here, actually, that when we talk about a particular love and the duty that emerges from that love, that it is beyond the ethical, right? The ethical we owe to everybody, right? We should take care of all human beings because that's ethical. When we talk about particular love for a Jew, particular love for a mother, particular love for a child, we're talking about doing what is beyond the basic ethical requirements into something that flows out of a love relationship rather than just out of an ethical duty. So there's another way that this principle is taught, not based on whom and what you love, but based on what you hate. It says in Shabbat 31a, there was another incident involving one non-Jew who came before Shammai and said to him, convert me on condition you teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Right? It's a little absurd, right? Teach me the whole Torah while I stand here on one foot. Shammai pushes him away with the builder's cupid in his hand. This was a common measuring stick and Shammai was a builder by trade. So that's why he has it in his hand. The same Gentile came before Hillel he converted him and said to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah and the rest is its, is, is its interpretation. Go study. So friends, very interesting. So here, this idea of, um, this idea of loving your fellow as yourself is now stated a little bit differently. That which is hateful to you, do not do to another. So in our conversation, I want to hear from you, which you think is a more powerful formulation. Love someone as yourself. Um, does that get us further? Or that which you hate, don't do to another. Of course, it doesn't mean your particularity. If I hate spaghetti sauce, it doesn't mean don't give somebody else spaghetti sauce because maybe they love spaghetti sauce. If, if I hate when people chew gum next to me, well, everybody hates that, right? <laughs> um, but if I take something that I hate because of my particularity, it doesn't mean everyone hates it. But something that all human beings would hate, 
I should have the empathy to also not engage in such a thing. So the rabbis are interested in other kinds of love as well. They taught all love that is dependent on a specific cause will disappear once that factor is no longer present. But the love that is not dependent on a specific cause will never disappear. That's pure chaos. So that, friends, let's understand what that means. That means if you have a lover and you only love them because um, they're wrinkle-free, they have no wrinkles. And then one day they get wrinkles. You say, oh, I don't love you anymore. These wrinkles, right? Or you have a child. And what you really love is not the child. What you really love is how they nurse on you. Or you really love the way they, they admire you as a six-year-old. And all of a sudden, they don't nurse anymore. And they don't admire you as much anymore. They push back. And now all of a sudden, you say, oh, what is this child? What is this child? Right? Or you love a, a student of yours because they um, are so respectful to you. Um, and then all of a sudden they lose their did, did you love them or did you love that one condition? And if, it's, and if a love is based on one condition, that, is, that love will not last. Rav Shimshon Rafah Hirsch teaches that love cannot be superficial. Wherever love is rooted in the spiritual and moral worth of the beloved individual, there the love will be as abiding as the values on which it was founded. But a love based on physical attraction will not outlast, uh, outlast those fleeting charms. Friends, I know it, I know I sound like a, a, um, a, a, like I'm out of touch here. And when I talk to young, young people, they certainly think that. But listen, I, I really try to tell people, don't make attraction your number one thing you're looking for. If you come to love and respect the person, the attraction will come. Of course, attraction is not nothing. We're human beings of flesh. We should be attracted to somebody. But if attraction is number one, that relationship will fade so quickly. If respect for who the person is at their core is there in a romantic relationship, the attraction will emerge. When we love, we should not be concerned with our own pleasure primarily, but rather focus on the well-being of the recipient of our love. I love this Musar story, which, which um, makes this point as well. Rav Leib Hasnan, the spiritual supervisor of the Hebron Yeshiva, he saw a student eating fish with great relish. Tell me, young man, he said, do you love fish? The student answered in the affirmative, yeah, I love fish. If you love fish, replied Rav Hasnan, then you should have cared for the, for the one on your plate. You should have fed it and tried to make it happy. Instead, you are devouring it. As the student groped for a proper response, the rabbi explained, obviously you don't love fish, you love yourself. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the kind of teacher I would have wanted as a child who put, backed me into the corner, right? But you get the point. You don't love fish. What you love is the pleasure that you get when you consume the fish. And friends, that is the, that is the, uh, that is the plague of our time with love. People, when someone doesn't actually love the other, they love what they get out of the relationship. Now that makes us human. There's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with wanting to get something out of a relationship. But when it's reciprocity, when what I love is not them, but what I get from that, then that is not a love. That is just eating fish. That's just eating fish. Also, emerging from the Musar camp, Rev Eliyahu Desler, spiritual advisor of the Panovich Shiva taught that giving, giving, not receiving, is what fosters love. Now, it's a little counterintuitive. It might sound sweet, but let's try to understand this point. Because you would think, oh, I have love because this person takes care of you. 
right? This person did a lot for me. I love them. But he's saying giving is what makes love rather than receiving. The love between man and woman is a fascinating phenomenon. The source of this love is the fact that they complement one another. For God has created men and women incomplete on their own. As the sages say, any man who is not married is not a complete human being. Thus, on his own, man is incomplete and cannot function properly. The completion they bring each other creates love, since as we have seen previously, giving to another fosters love. The love that exists between them makes them want to give happiness and satisfaction to each other. I always say to couples at their wedding as follows, take care to always wish to bring joy and pleasure to each other as you do now. And be aware that the moment you begin making demands on each other, happiness will escape you. The proper relationship between man and woman is when they both have developed the quality of giving. When they achieve that, their love will continue and their lives will be constantly filled with happiness and satisfaction. Of course, he is um, speaking about a man and a woman as, um, but this obviously, this idea also applies uh, to, um, to a gay couple, of course. Um, and so just to understand the Hebrew, the Hebrew, which he derives this from, what's the word for love in Hebrew, friends? Ahava. Ahava is love. And in the root of Ahava is have. And have means to give. So at the root of love is giving. So he says the one who gives more is the one who will love more. That's why a parent almost always, almost always, in most of the lifespan, loves a child more than a child loves a parent because the parent gives more to a child than the child to the parent, you might say, in many relationships. Um, and so of course, if a child becomes a caregiver to an, a parent, if that might shift. Um, so, okay, anyways, that, that's Rob Dessler. The prolific 20th century author and teacher, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, similarly explained that we don't love another just for what they do for us, but for who they are, even as he expresses this very anachronistically in language that assumes that in a relationship between a man and a woman, the man is the one who loves and the woman serves as the object of this love. He writes, the most perfect love in the world is between parent and child. When a mother holds an infant in her arms, her heart overflows with this unique love. She has this love not because she expects anything from the child, but merely because the child exists Love between parent and child exists because parent and child feel like one. The bond between a man and woman is a reflection of this. Like, so on a spiritual level, I mean, and also on a psychological level, postpartum depression may partially be due to this break of unity. There's a break of unity. The child is, is at one with the mother in her womb. And the child comes out and her unity is broken, you might say. So there's a depression, by the way. Did you ever think when we say Baruch Atah Hashem, when we say Blessed are you, God, as soon as we say Atah, we have broken the divine unity. Atah, you, God is someone separate. According to pantheistic mystical tradition, there's only oneness. As soon as I say Baruch Atah, Blessed are you, I say you are another being. I've broken that oneness. There's a depression that almost emerges from this moment of separation. Anyways, he continues. The Torah teaches that man and women, that man and women were originally created as a single androgynous unit. How radical is that? 
a single androgynous unit, it says over there um, in the Midrash. God then separated the two, right? Man and woman are connected, their bodies, making man and woman into independent persons. Thus, man and woman begin as a single entity, right? A spectrum of gender, if you will. And togetherness is a natural tendency to be one. Adam recognized this as soon as Eve was separated from him. He said, oh, now this is a bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. Adam was saying that when a man marries, he takes the natural love that he has for his parents and directs it towards his wife. The Talmud teaches, therefore, one's wife is like one's own body. It also teaches that in a perfect marriage, a man loves his wife like his own body. When love is perfect, man and wife are like a single person. Basar achat, it's basar achat, one skin, one flesh. All barriers, no matter how insurmountable, can be overcome by this love. The Talmud thus relates that one man said of his wife, when the love between us was intense, we could have lain together on the edge of a sword. Okay, so the Torah says basar achat, and the Ramban and the Rashi have a machloket. They have a debate on what basar achat means, one flesh. According to one view, one flesh means sex. In marital relations, you become one skin. Your skin is so connected, you are unified. According to the other view, basar achat, one flesh means you, you re reproduction. You create a child. You create flesh from your flesh. When your flesh unites, you create a child. So that's what basar achat over there in Genesis might mean. Okay, let's go to Rav Hirsch. Back to Rav Hirsch. He further teaches this German philosopher, Rabbi, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is not the person themselves, but everything that pertains to this person. Oh, you don't just love the person. You love the extensions of the person, all the conditions of their life, the weal and the woe, which makes up their position in the world. To this, the weal and the woe, we are to give our love as if it were our own. We are to rejoice in this good fortune and grieve over the misfortune as if it was our own. We are to assist in everything that furthers their well-being and happiness as if we were working for ourselves. For the demand of this love is something which lies quite outside the sphere of the personality of our neighbor. Nobody may look on the progress of another as a hindrance to their own progress or look on the downfall of another as the means of their own rising. And nobody may rejoice in their own progress if it is at the expense of their neighbor. Their own self-love too is only a consciousness of this duty. He sees in himself only a creation of God entrusted to himself to attain the bodily, mental, and earthly existence for which he had given him directions in the Torah. So friends, this idea, this is a complicated idea. Do we merely love the person or do we love the extensions of the person? Let's say, for example, this is easy when we're, we have no real emotional um, um, uh, desire or dis uh, distaste for something that's an extension. It's complicated when we have a distaste. So let me give an example. If my child loves soccer, and I don't love soccer, but I don't hate soccer, I now, because I love the child, I am invested in soccer. And if they're excited about soccer, I don't just love them. I love their commitment to soccer, right? Now it gets more complicated if they like something that I find uh, distasteful. 
right? Let's say they have, let's say your child comes home and they have fallen in love with someone that we don't like. We think this person they've fallen in love with is bad for them, bad for the world. They rub us the wrong way. So what do we do to love our child? Our child wants us to love their partner, right? On the other hand, we don't love this partner. We, we distrust this partner, right? So what do we do? What do we do if our child comes home with a partner that we don't love? Um, not that we just don't love, that we actually have some distrust. So Rob Hirsch is pushing us to think about this question. How much do I love the child in their essence? And how much do I love the child in their extensions beyond their essence? Okay, friends, a reminder. In the Torah, there are three primary love relationships. Number one, love of our fellow Jews, the Ahaftilarecha Kamoa. Number two, love of God, Ahavat Hashem. And number three, love of the stranger, love of the Gary. Of course, there's also many other extensions of love. And Israel, of course, emerges from the first. But these are the three primary ethical paradigms. And we should push back on those who said, oh, the New Testament is a tradition of love. That Old Testament is all about justice, not love. This is simply not true. And it's a distortion of Judaism. Um, that, of course, Judaism is deeply invested in love. And the relationship between love and justice is complicated. Okay, so here's what it says over here in the Talmud of Yoma. The Talmud of Yoma. At the time that the Israelites would go up to the temple in Jerusalem for the festivals, the Kohanim would roll back the curtain, Kodesh HaKadoshim, and show the Cherubim, Cherubim, who were clinging to each other. And they would say to them, look, your love before God is like the love of a man and woman. The Rambam, Maimonides, offers a different threefold model of love. Here on Pirkei Avot. There are three types of love, he says. Love due to what one stands to benefit from the other. Okay? It's a reciprocity. Love of pleasure, right? And love of virtue. Love of virtue is when two people desire the same valuable thing the essentially good, and each one wishes to collaborate with the other in obtaining the ideal for both of them. Okay, so let's unpack the Rambam a little. This is very Aristotelian, of course. <coughs> Benefit from the other. Let's say that's that's a, um, the, it's the type of marriage where um, it's not a deep love. Like, okay, you do the dishes, I do the laundry. Okay, like we make it work because we benefit each other. It's all about kind of what I gain, what you gain. Let's add it up. Let's make sure it's perfectly equal, right? Then there's love of pleasure. That would be like my friend I go to a football game with, right? I don't really love you, right? But like, we have a good time. Like, let's go play ball. Let's go watch some ball. Like, let's go do our nails together, right? It's not really about a love of each other. I, I have fun. I have fun when we go out together, right? And then there's love of virtue. And for Rambam, this is the highest. This is the chavrusa. This is the person you study Torah with. This is the person you can bear your soul with. And they're going to sit with you with empathy. Right? This is the person that you're in a deeper life journey with. It's not about be benefit. It's not about pleasure. It's about a deeper, soulful uh, pursuit of virtue in the world. So for the Rambam, following Aristotelian thought, one level of loving another is being a virtue partner with them. After all, the Talmud teaches that without a life partner, one is missing so much. Here's what it says here in Yevamot. Rav Tanchum said in the name of Rav Chanilai, 
any man who does not have a wife lives without happiness, without blessing, and without goodness. You got nothing. You got nothing. In the West, in Israel, they said without Torah and without a protective wall. Rav Bar Ula said without peace. Like, just understand. They think, um, they think a single man is a big problem. You have no happiness. You have no blessing. You have no goodness. You have uh, no protective wall. You have no, you have no peace, ultimately. So this is a big deal to them. Um, now, it's, it's actually interesting. If you've noticed the trends, I've been reading about this uh, for various reasons of people I'm in relationship with, that single women um, who are older, let's say um, 60 and up, 70 and up, um, uh, they are more happy being single. Older men, 60s and up, 70s and up, they're really desperate for a partner. Um, and we can unpack why that is. That, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, but um, uh, apparently single older women are much more comfortable be it, remaining single in a way that was the opposite historically. Historically, we assumed that an older woman needed protection. She needed it much more than, than he needed it um, for various reasons. And today the trends are very, are very different. I mean, statistically, like, like at odds with each other. It, it's, it's fascinating. Maybe someone will post uh, in the chat something they've read or an article that gives the exact stats. This idea of covenantal commitment is one that Rav Soloveitchik develops as well. Here's what he writes in Family Redeemed, really a, a remarkable book. This is a bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. <laughs> Eileen, thanks. <laughs> yeah. um, the Bible equated the great historical covenants binding the charismatic community to God with the limited private covenant that unites two individuals in matrimony. On the one hand, the great covenant has been compared by the prophets time and again to the betrothal of Israel to God. On the other hand, the ordinary betrothal of woman to man has been raised to the level of covenantal commitment. Marriage as such is called breit, a covenant. Apparently the Bible thinks that the redeeming power of marriage consists in personalizing the sexual experience and having two strangers both endowed with equal dignity and worth meet. And the objective medium of attaining that meeting is the assumption of covenantal obligations, which are based upon the principle of equality. Hence, we have a clue to the understanding of the nature of matrimony. All we have to do is analyze the unique aspects of covenantal commitment and apply them to the matrimonial commitments. Within the frame of reference of marriage, love becomes not an instinctual reaction of an excited heart. This is our debate, friends. It's not about an excited heart to the shocking sudden encounter with beauty but an intentional experience in reply to a metaphysical ethical summons, a response to the great challenge replete with ethical motifs. Love emerging from an existential moral awareness is sustained not by the flame of passion, but by the strength of a divine norm whose repetitious fulfillment reawakens its vigor and force. The marriage partners by imitating God who created a world in order to be concerned with and care for it extend the frontiers for their communal living to their offspring. And by questing to love someone who is yet unborn, defy the power of erotic change and flux, the ethical yearning to create and share existence with someone as yet unknown redeems the heated by infusing it with axiological normative meaning and thus gives it a new aspect, that of faith. Since our eternal faith in God is something which defies rationalization, 
The mutual temporal faith of man and woman united in matrimony is just as paradoxical. History does not warrant our unswerving religious faith. Likewise, utilitarian psychology denies the element of faith in the marriage institution. Friends, by the way, I, I, I've, I've made a, a grave error and, and I, I hope I don't make this often, but I, I, today I most certainly did. I don't have any women quotes on my source sheet. Um, I, I mean, yeah, which, which is always a bad thing. Um, that's always a bad thing. But in particular, when we're dealing about something like relationships and all I'm quoting are men, so forgive me for that. And all the more so we'll hear from women in our, in our, in our conversation. Um, and, I, and I'd be curious, I mean, are these just, um, you know, um, it doesn't matter. These, these are not gendered, uh, a, a bit of a bias, yeah. Um, are these just um, um, uh, um, wise ideas regardless or would there be a, a, a very different gendered approach? In any ways, we see here from Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Soloveitchik this, uh, this notion that this love is not about the excited heart primarily. It goes far beyond it. Now let's go to the how the, how Webster um, Webster defines love. I'm not sharing my screen, so you can't see it. But here is the three definitions of love according to Webster, because Webster is the source of all truth, right? Miriam Miriam Webster. Number one, love means a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person, motherly love, paternal love. It, number two, an attraction an attraction that includes sexual desire, strong affection felt by people who have a romantic relationship. Number three, a person you love in a romantic way, like a lost love. So according to Webster, love is an emotion. Love is an emotion. Love is this attraction. It's this affection. It's this feeling I have in me that I call love. It is, it is purely in the affective realm. Now, C.S. Lewis, a Catholic theologian of the 20th century, he describes four loves. He says, number one, there is affection. I'm going to post these in the chat. Number one, there is affection. Number two, there is, there is friendship, philia. Number three, those romantic love, eros. And number four, there's charity, agape. So he says, oh, there's four different kinds of love. And these emotions and commitments are very different in each one. And don't mess these up. Don't mess these up. Your child is not your friend and your parent is not your neighbor, right? And the stranger on the other side of the world is not your fellow citizen, right? There's these different types of love and we should intellectually and spiritually and emotionally align ourselves with very different kinds of relationships. Okay, so, all right, we're moving forward here. We're almost to an end and I wanna open the discussion. So, so far we have demonstrated that contrary to what many Jews think, Judaism, that Judaism isn't a religion of love precisely because Christianity sees itself that way and they want to differentiate themselves from Christians. And so they say we're a, a religion of justice perhaps. Judaism is indeed a religion deeply concerned with love. We have seen that there are many different kinds of love for different people and for God. But how do we fulfill that love? Some might argue that love is merely a passionate emotion but many Jewish thinkers argue against this approach, prioritizing love acted upon over love simply felt. Again, Soloveitchik wrote elsewhere, the Bible spoke of the commandment to love one's neighbor. However, in Talmudic literature, emphasis was placed not only upon sentiment, but upon action, which is motivated by sentiment. The Choshen Mishpat, the Jewish code of civil law, 
analyzes not human emotions, but actual human relations. The problem of Choshen Mishpat is not what one feels towards the other, but how he acts toward him. So following the approach that love is not just an emotion, but is actualized through deed, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote, what is chesed? Because chesed is another word for love. Chesed or kindness. It, it's usually translated as kindness, but it also means love, he argues. Not love as emotion or passion, right? That fleeting type of love that after the third date has faded away. But love expressed as deed. Theologians define chesed as covenant love. Covenant is the bond by which two parties pledge themselves to one another, each respecting the freedom and the integrity of the other. Chesed is an act of engagement. Justice is best administered without emotion, he argues. Chesed exists only in virtue of emotion, empathy and sympathy, feeling with and feeling for. We act with kindness, because we know what it feels like to be in need of kindness. We comfort the mourners because we know what it is to mourn. Chesed requires not detached rationality, but emotional intelligence. Societies are only human and humanizing when they are a community of communities built on face-to-face -face encounters, covenantal relationships. Emmanuel Levinas was right to see the concept of a face as fundamental to our humanity. Society is faceless. Chesed is a relationship of face-to-face. -face. The Pentateuch repeatedly emphasizes that we cannot see God face-to-face. -face. It follows that we can only see God in the face of another. Okay, so to conclude here, it is not enough to help another and at the same time not feel any emotional connection to them. It is also certainly not enough to feel fervent, passionate love for another, but not to take responsibility for their care. The deed is primary but the emotion is connected to the deed. This is why Judaism does not advocate for boundless love. Love made real through deed is dependent on the resources that makes deeds possible. Resources such as time and energy, which are by their very nature limited, but love that is bound by the need to prioritize among the deeds that actualize that love can nonetheless be, and perhaps must be, as deep and as meaningful as any other love. Okay, friends, that's a lot to digest here. Who wants to kick off the conversation for us? <coughs> yes, Lauren. As, as usual, Rabbi Sachs, may he rest in peace, hits the nail on the head. Um, love is chesed, love is seeing the the godly spark in, in, in the other person, which is not always easy. Uh, loving your fellow Jew, if you're on the member of a shul board, it's not so easy. When you're living in Israel and they're pushing you off the bus, it's not so easy. Loving your neighbor, if your neighbor next door is uh, blasting the stereo, not so easy. So it takes a lot of work. But I, I, I also really think it's important, and this I think is where women differ, um, the comment of, of love being transactional, that's not going to last. That can't be long lasting. That, that's not love. That's dependence on the next person. I mean, you know, if you're sick and your spouse says to you, uh, so get up and make dinner when he's perfectly capable, that, that's not love. That's, that's dependence. 
So, you know, I think that some of what we call love is, um, is not love. I think chesed really hits it. Beautiful, thank you, Lauren. Very interesting, thank you so much. Okay, who else wants to jump in here? With a question or a thought. Hi, Rabbi. Uh, what are your thoughts on unconditional love? Do you think that it's actually real or is there kind of little lines where it's not real? Um, meaning like there's, there's some parents where you could see that there's definitely conditions to their love. Or when we see uh, with different partners, we think that we have unconditional love, but do we truly? And or do, uh, does unconditional love only go to our children? Um, and does that only stem from our parents? Amazing, amazing. What, what a great question. And I would love to hear from others as well after I reflect briefly on Eddie's awesome question here. And my first answer as always about things uh, this deep are, I don't know, I don't know. But here's what I think um, from our tradition. I think um, that God is a wellspring of infinite love. And so I think that the, for humans to have unconditional love is aspirational, but not actual. I think we strive for unconditional love. We strive for infinite love. And yet we can never fully get there. That's divine. That's divine. And yet we strive. So just as we talk about sinat chinam, baseless hatred is what destroyed the second temple. Hatred without real condition. So too, Rav Cook says, we rebuild the world through ahavat chinam, through baseless love, unconditional love. And that is aspirational. Um, nobody can be loved without condition. Um, um, no one can be loved fully and completely. We would dissolve, we would lose ego, right? Ego is what maintains a sense of self. And self always has an awareness of self-protection, which is to say, I have to protect myself from another. Um, and that is always a part of the psyche. So we can go so far towards loving another even when they may have hurt us, even when they may be distant from us, and yet there's still limitations there. And so um, I think um, unconditional love is um, something um, divine and, um, and something to strive for, and yet um, uh, so hard to achieve, so hard to achieve. Um, and so, uh, but I'm, Eddie, I'm curious what you think about that. I, I love that answer that um, it's the strive to the divine, right? It's like the, the total goal to be able to, to say that you love unconditionally, but I think that you're 100% correct where our ego holds us back from being able to love unconditionally because we also put a sense of ourselves first, mm -hmm. whereas if we feel hurt or wronged, then that love lowers. Yeah. Now, I do think that... Um, this unconditional love is about loving the entirety of the person. We may reach a spiritual level where we, we can love everyone because everyone is created but Selim Elohim. Everyone is created in the image of God. And we can love the deepest essence of a person, right? Their divine spark, so to speak. And say, I hate who this person has become. I hate the way this person is acting. But there's a deeper part of this person I still love. And here might be an example that might be easy for some to relate to. Unfortunately, many parents are estranged from their parents, from their children. 
in some cases fully estranged, in some cases partially estranged in ways they can't, they, they themselves can't name, right? Um, that yes, I mean, partially estranged means like you talk every few months, right? You don't even talk, forget even once a week or every few weeks, like every few months you have a 10 minute phone call. That's pretty much called estrangement. Um, of course, it could be much worse. Um, but and, and there might be a case where you say, oh, I love that six-year-old boy that I had, but I don't love him as a 29-year-old. And so it's almost like my channel towards loving him is loving him as a six-year-old. Same as a parent. I love that parent who was there for me when I was four. I still feel that love they gave me when I'm four. But now that I'm 25, 26, 30, and I see the way that, that they're giving me love, I really don't want that love. I, I, I don't gain from that love. I, yes, I still feel gratitude for when I was four and what I felt like to be held, but it's, it, it's gone away. And so in a sense, we cannot love the current person, but love something deeper or something, something of the past. It, it, it's an aspirational love that we're not willing to completely throw in the towel. And yet um, it's, it's painful. Yes, Eileen. Mute. Okay. Um, so my question is on the four attributes that C.S. Lewis argued, um, would you agree that there's only four or do you think there's possibly more? Oh, that's a great question. That is a great question. I actually think that every love is unique. I would actually argue that even four categories is, 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 is way too far. The way, let's look in the romantic era. The way we loved that person when we were seven years old and they sat next to us in class, the way we loved someone that was our first crush, the way we loved someone who was our first kiss, the way we loved our first dating partner, the way we loved our first spouse, or second spouse, right? <laughs> the, way, the way we loved each of those love, we, we call it love but they really were fundamentally different experiences. The way we love one child and another child, we call it love of a child, but really they're totally different relationships. Uh, if there's any emotional depth in our love, they're radically different experiences. And it's true in refugees, the way I love, um, the way I love my, my dear friend and colleague here, Eddie Chavez Calderon is a DACA recipient. It's very different than the way I, I, I love, a, 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 you know, in El Salvador, uh, uh, asylum seeker who I meet for the first time is very different than how I love an Afghan refugee who just arrived, right? Even though I, there's a category called love this person who's a stranger, which is a political category of a person, person without political protection, right? That love is very different based on the proximity and based upon that relationship. Love of a Jew, Ahavat Israel, love of a Jew, right? That's very different than someone who is a Jew like me and someone who's an ultra-Orthodox Jew or a secular Jew. Right? I love those kind of Jews differently. And that's not bad. That's not bad. Love is, has so many layers to it. It's like a song. It's like a song and there's a different melody. There's a different melody. There's a different beat. It's almost like, it'd be like saying you love music. Okay, well, that's a pretty superficial comment. I love music. But the way I experience classical music with a, with a glass of dry red wine and the way that I dance with my child to bim bam. And the way that I, I, I listen to a rap song when I'm really fired up in the car and the way that I might do a country dance, I might do a country dance to a, that's a country song, right? These, I love music, but what is that? These are totally different emotions with totally different melodies, right? So, um, so, so Eileen, what do you think? So I think there's a hierarchy and um, 
I think what you're expressing is that love has multitudinous ways of being expressed. And yes, I think that my love for one of my children is different than the other. As I perceive they need different things. You know, you talk about being fair to your kids, but if one child has um, a need that the other doesn't, how can you be fair if you treat them the same? You can't. So I think you have to adjust for differences. So I liked your comments on uh, romantically, the first boyfriend, the first kiss, yes, those are all slightly different. They all come under the heading of romance. But let me tell you, the first kiss is different than the last kiss. <laughs> Boy, is that the truth. <laughs> you know, um, and let me say something about the very dysfunctional relationships in the Torah. You know, the dysfunctional relationships in the Torah that we're reading right now in Genesis and Bereshit is due to many things. But partially it is due to their brutal honesty. And what they're honest about is their preferences and love in a way that today we would consider to be very harmful and dysfunctional. But they're honest. Yaakov is like, I love Yosef. I love Yosef. And he, and he shows him preferential treatment. And that causes all this brotherly strife and the way they, they try to kill him and then ultimately sell him off, right? And today we're not so honest. Today we tell our children we love them all the same. And that's what we should tell them, I think. We should tell, not, not, not we love them the same, that we love them differently, actually, is what I think we should say. But tell me if you have a different view. Now, oh, I, love, I love everyone. Um, I love everyone uh, differently. Um, and there's a different love there. But essentially, th that they get the sense that it's the same amount. It's the same amount. And the people in the Torah were too honest. They said, oh, actually, uh, I, I kind of think you're better than, than him. I feel closer to you than you. I choose you over you, right? They, they actually shared what they felt. Um, in a way that um, would be very harmful today. And so, and so, um, yeah, going back to your point there, it's really, it's really powerful about parents and children. And, you know, it's interesting. The Torah does not command us to take care of our children. It doesn't. And that's very sad. But the assumption is the parental love for a child is so biological. It is so natural that something is incredibly off if a parent abuses or neglects a child, right? Unfortunately, in America today, there's 450,000 children in foster care. About 700,000 pass through the foster care system every year in America. So of course, there is a problem with neglect and abuse of children, even though it's so natural. However, what does the Torah tell us over and over? Ki bud av ve'em. Honor your mother and father. Over and over. Because it's not natural. When, you're, when you start growing up, it's all about me, my career my marriage, my success, my parents, they're a person of the past. Okay, I'll visit them once a year. I'm going to move away. And we have a big problem today with children not taking care of their parents. And that's why the Torah understands that. It tells us over and over, honor your mother and father. Honor them. It doesn't mean just don't sit in their chair. Respect them. Take care of them. Do things for them, right? And so we see that the Torah understands the way a parent is going to love their child. It's so natural. They don't even have to command it. But it's not natural to take care of a parent. And so they have to over and over remind us of this, of this type of care. And so too, so too, the Torah doesn't command um, that we take care of our spouse for the most part. 
the rabbis then come and we have to create a covenant. We have to create a contract. What happens at a marriage? Oh, friends, it's very romantic at a, at a wedding. At a wedding, you read the ketubah. And you know what the ketubah is? The ketubah is a legal contract of how a man is going to buy his wife clothes and he's going to give her sexual pleasure and he's going to give fulfill his her needs and 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 she's you know there's a dowry and there's, there's money involved it's very romantic but that's why it's romantic because the jewish notion of romance is responsibility responsibility if if the jewish notion of romance was like oh the perfect candlelight dinner with the perfect dinner that was made okay now putting that down romance is great right romance is great but the jewish notion of, of romance is loyalty loyalty Right, a sense of uh, responsibility to each other. It's a contractual agreement. It's a covenant, just like our relationship to God. On one part, is passionate and loving. It's intimate, and on the other hand, it's a covenant. It's a breach. It is a contractual agreement of what we're going to do for each other. Right, that's what we made at Har Sinai. It's a legal agreement at, at Sinai when the Jewish people married God. We made a commitment to each other, like a ketubah. It's not super romantic. It's about it's about our duty. Okay, who did we not hear from yet? I, um, Della and Steve and Eric and Ed and Rabbi Lerner. Steve, hi, Steve. Am I on? Yes, you're on. Oh, uh, well, this is a huge Todarabah to Eileen Landau who said one of the most profound and funny things that I've ever heard, the first kiss is not the same as the last kiss. And it has inspired me so much that I might get my first tattoo with that <laughs> emblazoned on, on my arm. Uh, one, one problem with God and love, and, and this will be the old curmudgeon Steve coming out, is that I think of God's love as so conditional. Mm. You do this and I'll do that. But if you don't do this, mm. watch out. And so I, I hate to think that that is the template for the way each of us acts or feels towards God. I, I, I am still very uncertain regarding the latter. And if anybody has some comments about what I consider view as conditional love of God, I'd love to hear. Amazing, amazing. Okay, I love that. So just to raise, to elevate the question rather than attempt to answer something so powerful. Of course, the God of the Torah is very different than the God in future generations in, in terms of that relationship. But tell me, does it, does it cheapen, does it cheapen a marriage if, if the partners say to each other on their wedding day, I love you so fully. I can never imagine not wanting to be with you. But if you cheat on me, I'll divorce you. If you cheat on me, I'll divorce you. Meaning, I love you fully, but if you hurt me, then I will distance you. And so if God says, I love you fully, but if you cheat on me, I'll divorce you. It, does that limit, like, how do we experience that, right? Or if a child says to a parent, I love you fully as my parents, but if you hit me, I will leave this house and not be your child, right? So like, does the, do those conditions look bad upon the condition maker? What do you think, Steve? No, not at all. But I don't sense that that is the way that many of us were taught Torah. Ah. Uh, and that's... Yeah, yeah, say more. Well, I'm trying to think of what to say more, so I'll pause <laughs> right here. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, you, but Steve, you're totally right that um, the experience of the divine that I also understand um, is one of unconditional love. That, that it is, it is you crawl into bed at night and you hug your pillow and you feel beaten down by the world and alone. And maybe you're in pain from a surgery or hurt from a colleague. You just feel so broken. And then you know there's someone who still loves you. Like in your essence, you're a baby in the womb, in the divine womb, being held with all of your flaws. And I believe the person in prison who's committed mass murder, who finally realizes what they've done and does teshuva, repents and returns to God in prison, they feel God's total forgiveness, total love and embrace. And that's the God I relate to also, Steve. And so when we go back and we read the Torah and we see a God who seems so demanding and so um, punitive, it feels like it smacks up in the face against that theology. And so I just want to affirm that powerful point you're making. And so I want to, I want to kind of defend the God of the Torah by saying, by saying like, yes, there should be conditions on love. If you hurt me, I'm going to walk away from you. And yet say that, like, I think there's a maturation in Jewish theology in terms of how we relate to God in this regard. And there, there was a God of, of the ancient days that looks different than God of modernity. Okay, who else can we hear from here? Can I ask you a question, just since you mentioned Tanakh? I've always been, I mean, last week's Parsha is problematic no matter what, in so many ways. But I've always been bothered by the idea that Yitzchak loved Esav because he made him a nice meat meal. Like, what is that? that that's love? I, I, it's too transactional. I don't okay. get it. Never does it say, oh, Yitzchak saw the good character that Rivka didn't see in Esav. It's like he made him a good meal. I, I don't get it. Okay, amazing. So this, that, that's a great question. Now, I want to remind us of, um, of the book, which I'm sure many of you read many years ago, called The Five Love Languages. Everyone remember that book? Okay. Um, and here's what he argues over there. I'm going to put it in the chat. Each of us has our own love language, he argues. And when we receive this type of love, yeah, we want all of them. But when we receive this type of love, we feel most love. So I'm going to put them in the chat. The first one, if you can see the chat, the first one we would call favors. When someone does a favor for me, I feel loved. The second is called praise. When someone tells me I'm great, I feel loved. The third is touch. When I'm hugged or kissed or someone holds my hand or, or marital relations, I, I feel loved. The fourth is, um, is time, when someone spends time with me. Um, and um, the fifth is gifts, is gifts. So he says um, that each of us primarily has one love language, even though we want everything, right? And um, the problem, he says, is not only that we don't know our own love language, and so we can't communicate it to others, but that we give others the type of love that we need rather than the type of love they need. So um, somebody, a, a partner comes home and they see their you know, partner really needs them. And, uh, and they say, uh, they, they look down, they say, oh, I bought you a watch. I bought you a watch to pick up your moves. I don't want a watch, I want you to do the dishes, right? Or they come home and they, they start 
getting romantic with them. They want to be sexually intimate. They say, I don't want sex. Like what I want you, I want you to buy me a watch. You know what I mean? Um, or, or, you know, someone says, geez, like uh, you bought me opera tickets. I mean, that's great, but I just want to sit on the sofa and talk with you for two hours. You know what I mean? I want time. I want time with you. And so for people to know their own love language is so complex. And then to know the love language of their partner. And by the way, he writes another book and I'm not saying these are perfect books, but they're just kind of give frameworks for thinking about some of this stuff about a parent-child relationship. And that a parent tends to give the type of child the love they need rather than the love they want. So I may have a child and I just love to hug them. I just want to touch them. I feel so close to them. And what they want is praise. They feel so beaten down. They want to be told they're great or they want help with homework, right? Or they want they want a new apple or something, a new apple, right? And, um, and so too. So we go back to the biblical stories like the meal. What does it mean to love someone? And what is the deep need that someone wants fulfilled? And when someone fulfills that deep need for me, I really feel loved. And so that stuff may be about our essence or it might be about our traumas. It may be that as a child, we didn't get something we needed. And so now I am desperate to have that need fulfilled. And when, it, when that need gets touched, it, it is so deep for me. It's not my essence. It's just my, my childhood experience. My parents didn't hug me. And so now when you hug me, I feel the healing nature of it, right? My parents didn't spend time with me. They told, them, they told me I was great. They fulfilled all my needs but they didn't spend time with me. So when you sit with me, I feel so valued when you listen to me. Nobody listened to me as a child, right? So again, some of this is about our deep essence and some of it is about our experience. And that is what it means to be in love with someone is that you listen and you learn their love languages and we come to help to fulfill that. So friends, um, I'll close with one story before we end here. One of my teachers, Ravavi, he, um, there's a story he likes to tell, and I come back to it all the time, that when he was a young rabbi, his parents who moved to Israel called him. They said, Avi, Avi, pick us up at the airport. We're coming to visit you in a few weeks. He said, okay, I'll try. I'm very busy, but I'll try. They call a week later. Please, Avi, I, here, here's the time of our flight. Can you be there? He said, actually, I've got a big meeting. I can't be there. I said, we know you're a hotshot rabbi, but, but you know, uh, just pick us up at the airport. He says, I love you very much. I love you very much, but I'm going to send you a cab. They call a week a week before the flight, say, Avi, we, we know you're very busy, but we, we want you to pick us up at the airport. I, I love I, Abba, Ima, I love you very much. I've got a great ride for you. I'll see you as soon as you arrive over here. Day before, Avi, Avi, tomorrow's the day. I know you've got a cab. I want you to pick us up at the airport. We've got, we're old now. We've got a lot of bags. Uh, we don't know where the taxi guy is going to be. Just be there. Uh, Abba, Ima, I love you very much. He said, Avi, stop loving me so damn much and pick me up at the airport. Right? And what they were saying to him is, I don't want you to tell me you love me. I want you to pick me up at the airport. So, so we can profess to another how much we love them. We can send them cards and emails. We can tell them we love them. But how do we show our love? How do we show our love? And that's where Judaism makes a greater demand on us. It says, yes, of course, love is a deep emotional experience in the world, right? Of course it is. And yet love has to be manifest through actions that demonstrate that love, right? And that's going to look different in every relationship. And we can feel that challenge together. So friends, um, we're never done with the topic when we pause. But I, I, as always, I learned so much from all of you. And next week, we will continue with debate number 26. Oh, the body versus the soul. We're going to have a great debate of, of the body versus the soul. Have a wonderful day and can't wait to see you then. Thank you so much. All the best.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.